This is 1988 Tops, where every card has a story to tell. Your hosts are David McKellis and Matt Kuzma. Let's play ball. Welcome back to 1988 Tops. David, what's our card for this week? Two cards this week, two Jose De Leon cards. Card 634, Jose De Leon, pitcher for the Chicago White Sox. And card 34T, Jose De Leon, pitcher for the St. Louis Cardinals. Okay, fantastic. Before we get to Jose, we have some follow-up from last week's episode about Ed Correa. Mark Simon sent us a note about 227. And he said, you mentioned Jack Hay and you mentioned Sherman Helmsley, but you neglected to mention the star of 227, Marla Gibbs. And he said, Marla Gibbs is a Chicagoan who said she preferred playing baseball to watching Milton Berle on TV as a little kid. And she is also a strong supporter of Kurt Flood for the Hall of Fame. Mark provided a link to Marla Gibbs' Instagram account and a post from September 30th, 2021, where Marla Gibbs for real is wearing a Flood the Hall shirt, which is, first of all, a great shirt and great to see Marla Gibbs supporting Kurt Flood's candidacy for induction into the Baseball Hall of Fame. So thank you, Mark Simon, for that note. Yeah, appreciate it. Did not peg Mark Simon as a Gibbs stan, but I highly respect it. Also, I received a package in the mail here. This is our first actual mailbag in a while, yes. David. Yeah, we've gotten some some packages in the mail before, some lovely artwork, card art, and things. So this is from Racanelli. And Racanelli is John, who wrote the Bob Dernier Sabre bio. Let me see what we got here. Ooh, we have an unboxing episode almost. Oh, I guess it's a letter. So it's unenveloping. Put that up to the microphone so we can hear the sound. So John is at P Hitter. 72 on Twitter. And John and I are both members of the Chicago Sabre chapter. And he said, David, great job with the podcast. I especially enjoyed the Bob Dernier episode. Was able to meet up with Bobby at the Cubs convention to get this signed for you. And he sent a signed 1988 Tops Bob Dernier. Oh, that's awesome. That's amazing. That is amazing. Thank you so much, John. And also, if any listeners are interested in coming to Chicago for the Sabre Convention next summer, hit us up on Twitter. We are interested in meeting up with listeners and fans and other Sabre members. We'd be happy to show you around our fair city. So stay tuned for that. We'll have as many official events for the podcast as we can do that week. And very much looking forward to it. If you have any comments about network television or anything else you'd like to send them to us, you can email us at 1988topspodcast at gmail.com. But now let's go to this week's episode, and why are we talking about Jose today? I noticed that we were running behind on Cardinals. I think we've only talked about four Cardinals, so I thought about Jose de Leon, only to realize that he was also a White Sox player, and that his regular card in the set was a White Sox card. He was traded in this season, and that's a kind of a big deal trade for the White Sox, and actually two big deal trades, one on each of these cards, one from the Pirates to the White Sox and one from the White Sox to the Cardinals. Big names involved in those trades. Jose De Leon was a guy who was never as bad as his win-loss record would indicate, but also never as good as the teams that he played for would hope he would be or that his 
stuff would suggest he was going to be. There is a Sabre bio this week by Richard Quickie. And so thank you, Richard, for that Sabre bio. We will rely on that as always. Jose de Leon has never come up on my other podcast about the Kings of Leon, which is called Reyes de Leon. I think there's no relation, but I'm excited to get into this one. So let's go to the front of card 634. And here we have very close up shot of Jose. He looks good. He's in a park somewhere. There's trees in the background. He's got a good smile. He's got a good mesh top going on. This red mesh workout top is is pretty great. The bright red with the block letter white socks and then the script C hat. Definitely a uh, spring training look for the White Sox. Pretty good picture. This is maybe the most extreme close-up we've got of anybody thus far in the set. It seems like a starter mustache for him. His mustache is in spring training form. It's not <laughs> yet at mid-season form. Exactly, exactly. So let's flip to the back of 634, and we have Jose de Leon, pitcher. Height 6'3", weight 215, right-handed thrower and batter. Drafted by the Pirates in the third round of 1979. Born December 20th, 1960 in La Vega, Dominican Republic, with a home in Perth Amboy, New Jersey. Born in La Vega, the fourth largest city in the Dominican Republic, one of the sites of earliest European settlement in the DR. Christopher Columbus built a fort near there. Later, gold was discovered in the area. There is now a national park, including the old city and the old gold mine at the location near La Vega. It's not quite the baseball hotbed that other cities in the Dominican Republic that we've discussed have been. Perhaps the best known recent player from there is Jonathan Villar, but not a ton of uh, professional players from La Vega. Jose's father, Elpidio, played catcher in the Dominican League, and, and two of his uncles also played professionally in the DR. Jose was one of six kids, and his family didn't have much money. He grew up playing baseball on the street without proper equipment or much training. His father left home searching for a better life for the family, and he found it in New York. He took a job at a leather factory and then later an air conditioning manufacturer, earning enough money to send back to the Dominican Republic to bring the family to New York. And so as you said, Jose was drafted. Normally, the guys who are from the Dominican Republic, they're listed as signed as a free agent. But Jose moved to Perth Amboy, New Jersey when he was 12, just across the Hudson River from New York. The name comes from the Scottish colonists who settled the area in 1683 and called it New Perth after James Drummond, the fourth Earl of Perth. James Drummond, probably namesake of Mr. Drummond mm. from different strokes. The name Perth Amboy, however, comes from a combination of New Perth combined with a corruption of the native name Ampogue, and it became Perth Amboy. It's spelled O-M-P-O-G-E. I'm not sure of the correct pronunciation there, but Amboy is not. But the settlers there named the, the town after both the Scottish name and then some variation of the native name. Famous Perth Amboyans include Soren Sorensen Adams, inventor of novelties like the Joy Buzzer, and also John Bon Jovi, Richie Sambora, and Alec John Such of Bon Jovi, all born in Perth Amboy. So Jose goes to Perth Amboy High School. He pitches for the baseball team, and in his sophomore year, he's great. He goes 10-3, and three, leads the state in strikeouts, and had nearly 
two strikeouts an inning at Perth Amboy High School. And then he just gets better over the next couple of years and gets drafted. No, actually, there's a detour. He decides to go back to stay with his grandma in the Dominican Republic, and he drops out of school. And so how does he end up with the Pirates? During his freshman year, a scout from the Pirates became aware of Jose. They knew he had good stuff already as a freshman, and the Pirates just kind of keep him in mind. And then in, because he dropped out of school, they're not sure when they can draft him, and they're trying to figure all this out. Because he had played in a U.S. high school, he should be eligible for the draft, but he lives now in the Dominican Republic. He actually had to petition the commissioner's office to allow him into the draft. The petition is accepted, and even though he hadn't pitched for a couple years, the Pirates thought so highly of him that they didn't want to lose him, and they used their third-round pick on Jose, a guy who hadn't pitched in two years, at least competitively. But at least they, they must have had a tryout or something to know that he was still able to pitch and still had a lively enough arm for professional baseball. It surprised Jose's coach at least how highly he was drafted, not necessarily that he was drafted. The coach said that he always knew Jose was pro material. He said, if he didn't make it, I didn't know who would. Yeah, it is surprising they'd use a third round pick on him, though. I'm guessing no one else was scouting him if he had left. But all the same, he joins the Pirates and goes to Rookie League with the Gulf Coast Pirates, and it didn't go great at first. He walked more than he struck out that first season with a whip of 1.932 in 59 innings. It had a 2-4 and four record with a 6.41 ERA. He moved to A ball and improved significantly, had a 10-15 and 15 record, ERA down to 4.8, and his whip was down to 1.363, in Double A Buffalo in 1981, he was even better. So he's getting better each year. 3.11 ERA, struck out about one per inning. But finally, in Triple A in Portland, he gave up a lot of hits the first year with an ERA that nearly doubled. But then in 1983, he has his second year in Triple A, and the Pirates affiliate moved to Hawaii. Apparently, this move from Portland to Hawaii, <laughs> this change of scenery, really made a difference for him. Even though he was still in the Pacific Coast League, which was a very good offensive league, he dramatically cut the number of hits that he allowed, and his whip dropped to 1.241. He won 11 games, and we get a fun fact. And that's it. Jose led the Pacific Coast League with a 3.04 ERA at Hawaii in 1983. He made the all-star team. He was striking out nearly a batter per inning, and that earns him the call-up in July to the big leagues. He joins the Pirates. They're in first place, and he goes out in his first start and pitches into the ninth inning, giving up only two runs to get a win, and got a four-hit complete game in his next start. His third start's at Shea Stadium, not far from his family home in New Jersey. He takes a no-hitter into the ninth inning, broken up by Hubie Brooks, and then he's pulled from the game 0-0. And this will be a theme of Jose's career. The Mets then go on to win one nothing in the 12th inning. So through three games, he pitched 26 innings, 27 strikeouts, and had a 1.04 ERA. Somehow didn't get three wins out of those three games. And that first week got Jose featured on This Week in Baseball. Seven major league starts since coming up from the minors. He struck out 13 Cincinnati Reds along the way. The most in one game for any pitcher this season. 
All eyes were on his no-hitter for six and two-thirds innings before it was broken up by Dan Dreesen. De Leon still went the distance for his first shutout. Previously, Jose had a no-hitter for six and a third against the Padres and eight and a third against the Mets. How about them rookie reapings? I love those 1983 Pirates uniforms. Those hats are just fantastic. And I miss this week in baseball. Someone needs to bring that back. I like the little music that's played behind it. It's like uh, elevator music. We could yeah. just have that playing throughout my house. It's very day. nice. So Chuck Tanner was very impressed by this. He keeps Jose in the rotation. And Jose started 15 games for the Pirates in 1983, went 7-3 with a 2.83 ERA. That's a 131 ERA+. plus. He struck out 118 batters in 108 innings and got some Rookie of the Year votes in the National League, finishing 7th, even though he only played in 15 games. This is a really good rookie start. Jose later said maybe it was too much success too soon. Those are foreboding words. The Pirates were okay. They finished 84 and 78 in second place. Heading into 1984, big things are expected from this breakout star. The Pirates pitching staff gave up the fewest runs in the National League, but the offense scored the third fewest runs in the league. That was also a theme of Jose's career, often on low scoring teams. So even when he pitched well, his record did not really reflect it. Jose was inconsistent and he was the only starter on the Pirates with a worse than league average ERA. He had a 7-13 record. His ERA plus was 97, so a little bit below average. Not as bad as his 7-13 record would suggest. But he had a bunch of games that were lost due to offensive outages. 16 of his starts, the Pirates scored one run or less while he was in the game. He had a stretch of 11 starts where he went 0-9, but he only had a 4.34 ERA. So you would expect him to win at least one or two of those games. It's not like he was getting blown out. He had four more near no hitters. The Pirates lost three of them. Really a a hard luck season after his ups and downs in the minors. You see that record, that 7-13 and record, and you expect that he was maybe giving up too many hits and walks, but he was right around league average with that. He just had no run support. 3.74 ERA is not terrible, just... A rough stretch on some bad Pirates teams. Yeah, 3.74 is not terrible at all. You would hope that your offense would be able to score four runs a game, but the 84 Pirates could not. And in 1985, it was even worse. This year, Jose, his ERA bumped up to 4.70, but his strikeouts per inning increased. So he had 149 strikeouts and 162 innings pitched. But the record, two wins and 19 losses, It seems statistically impossible that someone could have that bad of a record. I think there's also the perception that for a guy to lose 19 games also takes some faith in that pitcher that you don't just send him down to the minors because that's just such a bad run that could really shatter somebody to just keep losing like that. He went 0-7 in his first 10 starts. He allowed a lot of base runners, and he also lost confidence. Later, Whitey Herzog would criticize the way that he was handled And Herzog said, first, he should have been in the minors. Second, they had a bad team. And he's right. This team only won 57 games. Third, they let him get beat because they didn't have a bullpen. Well, they had to Colby. But evidently, when Tanner managed him, they kind of let him go out and win or lose the game. And so when you leave it up to a relatively young pitcher, he might lose some confidence. And then 
fall off a little bit, and that can impact his performance. He finally got a win on June 2nd. He got a second win on June 14th, and then didn't win another game all season. He ends up getting sent to Hawaii in July. That actually keeps him from losing 20 games, probably. But he went 4-0 and in Hawaii with a .88 ERA, and then goes back to the Pirates and has 11 straight losses. Over that stretch of 11 straight losses, 4.74 ERA in his final 18 games, included a little stretch in the bullpen where he got three saves. They're trying everything to get his confidence up, but it doesn't help when you have that bad of an offense. He ends up 2-19 and with a 1.395 whip and a 77 ERA+. plus. So that's pretty bad, but not as bad as you would expect from that historically bad winning percentage. 0.095 winning percentage is the worst among modern era starters with 25 or more starts. Ryan Stanek went 0-4 in 2019, but that doesn't really count because he was just an opener who would pitch a short stint at the beginning of the game. And his battery partner, Tony Pena, said his confidence was shot because the team was so bad. He said it would get to his head. He would say, I'm going to pitch a good game, but I'm going to lose because we don't score any runs. He was pitching as well as he did the other years, but he got too frustrated, too confused, and he thought he wasn't any good. So we looked back and he ended right around zero war. So it's not like he lost his team tons of games, even though he had the worst win-loss record in the modern era. In the offseason, he re-signed and got a significant raise, but still started back at AAA and pitched well in two different stints in AAA, overall 15 games with a 2.46 ERA, and that gets him called back up to the majors in May of 1986. He pitched eight games in relief for the Pirates, and it was okay there. Then he had his first start against the Mets and gave up eight runs in four innings. And if you look at the line on the card for 1986 with the Pirates, that shoots his ERA up to 8.27. He is sent back to triple A and takes us to that major trade that you mentioned, David, and this way to the clubhouse that Jose was traded by the Pirates to the White Sox in exchange for infielder Bobby Bonilla, July 23rd, 1986, a trade that would change the Pirates significantly. And it would change the career prospects of one Hawk Harrelson. The White Sox got off to a 26-38 start in 1986, and that led to some decisions being made. At this point, Hawk Harrelson, who had been the play-by-play man for the Sox since 1981, was brought in in October of 85 to be chief of operations, basically operating as the GM. And he was the man making the decisions for the White Sox. First, he decided to fire manager Tony La Russa. A decision that owner Jerry Reinsdorf would regret and then rehire La Russa in 2021, which turned out great. You know it's good when you say about the trade that you just made, literally in the paper the next day, I'll get ripped for the trade. There's no question about it, but I like this trade. (laughs) Bobby Bonilla himself said of De Leon that he has an awesome forkball. When it's working, nobody touches him. A lot of De Leon's seemed like his movement through the minors, and then this trade was even brought about by the belief that De Leon was a better pitcher than even he was showing on the field. Bonilla at that point was a 23-year-old rookie, mostly playing first base and outfield. He ends up going to the Pirates, switching to third base, makes four all-star appearances for the Pirates. From the time period of 87 to 91, he is valued at 20 war. De Leon didn't really have a chance to live up to that, 
and prove that he was worth that trade, he was actually quite good to close out 1986. He started with the Sox AAA team, which kind of makes this even more silly that you're trading away a young prospect in Bobby Bonilla for a guy who you're going to immediately send to AAA, who is already in AAA. But a lot of people really liked Jose De Leon's stuff. As soon as he came to the White Sox, they said he's probably the best arm in our organization now. He gets called up, goes 4-5 and five in 13 games. Again, that record doesn't reflect that he was very good. He had a 2.96 ERA, 148 ERA+. plus. This was really his best performance since that rookie season. But the Sox lose 90 games that season. These two big decisions of firing La Russa and trading away Bonilla get Hawk Harrelson sent back to the broadcast booth out of the front office, which is probably where he belonged to begin with. This broadcaster as general manager trend, I don't know that it's worked out that many places. In 1987, Jose had an okay season for a meh Sox team. All of the Sox starters had ERA pluses over 100, including Jose with a 115 ERA plus. He had his most starts, innings, and wins to that point in his career. So he played in 33 games, had 206 innings pitched, an 11 and 12 record. ERA of 4.02. He was fifth best in the American League in hits per nine innings, but control was a big issue this year. He gave up the ninth most walks and the second most hit by pitches. And once again, not getting offensive support under 500 for his winning percentage. This solidifies it in everyone's mind that this was a terrible decision by Hawk Harrelson to trade away Bonilla. Meanwhile, they're watching the Pirates in 1987 start to really climb the ladder. To end 1987, Jose won six of his final seven starts. So the Sox think maybe his value has increased some, but they can trade Jose away. And the Cardinals come calling. Whitey Herzog had seen De Leon when he pitched in the National League, and he really liked him. He liked his stuff. And th the same thing went for John Tudor, as we saw Whitey Herzog famously able to turn John Tudor into a Cy Young caliber pitcher. Whitey Herzog thought that he could do the same with Jose De Leon. So the Cardinals and White Sox are negotiating for months before we get a second card and a new This Way to the Clubhouse. Pulling up on the Jumbotron card 34T, This Way to the Clubhouse is that Jose was traded by the White Sox to the Cardinals in exchange for Ricky Horton and Lance Johnson, February 9th, 1988. An additional fun fact about this card, David, is that 34T is Jose De Leon, but card 34 from the 1988 set is Ricky Horton. So there is a, a synergy of these two cards coming together as these players were traded. I'm sure knowing what we know about the Topps planning process in, these set, in this set, <laughs> that it was entirely intentional. Front of this card, pretty good. Got the classic Cardinals gray uniform, the two birds on a bat. Looks good. His mustache looks in mid-season form here. Does it look like he's throwing a forkball here? He's well-known for a forkball. Looks like that might be what he's throwing. I always like the Cardinals in the cooler weather when they've got the, the long-sleeve red undershirt. I feel like really makes this uniform, really improves this uniform to have that color pop. That trade that you mentioned for Ricky Horton and Lance Johnson, Ricky Horton didn't really do much for the White Sox. He did end up on the Dodgers in 1988 and won a ring, pitching four scoreless innings in the NLCS. The other name on there is Lance Johnson, the one dog. He became the White Sox starting center fielder 
filled that role admirably from 1990 to 1995. Even though he played in 87, he was not included in the 1988 Tops traded set, even though he's involved in this huge trade. Ricky Horton, I think, got two cards. So we'll talk about him later. But unfortunately, we won't have a Lance Johnson episode. So Jose goes to St. Louis, where he worked with Whitey Herzog and pitching coach Mike Rourke. He also rejoined his former battery mate and fellow Dominican Tony Pena. They moved Jose away from relying on his forkball. He threw more fastballs, and this helped his control significantly. His walks dropped right away. And Jose's mother was a big fan of the move because she liked the two little birds on the uniform. We have a standing rule on this show. Trust mom's opinion. Moms, no. Just trust mom when she, on these things. She's right. The change of uniform was a big help. However, not really a big change of team fortunes as the National League champ Cardinals underperformed on offense and had a lot of injuries on their pitching staff. DeLeon ended up with the most starts and innings on the Cardinals that year. He finished with 13 wins with a respectable 3.67 ERA, even though it was a ERA plus of only 95. But Whitey Herzog said, to win 13 games with our club last year was a hell of a feat. We didn't score any runs. That's true. In DeLeon's 10 losses, the Cardinals only scored 15 runs, which is shocking. Pretty bad. Jose had a career high 208 strikeouts, which is the most of any Cardinal pitcher at that point since Bob Gibson in 1972. So pretty good company to be in. Going into 1989, he's a valuable part of the rotation. Through his first eight games, he went six and two. He gets this write-up in Sporting News where they're talking about how he is a potential ace of the staff. Jose said everybody was always saying he has a great arm but never wins. I got tired of that. And at that point, he had a 45 and 65 record with a 101 ERA plus. So a pretty league average pitcher with a terrible record. But for the first time in his career, he's on a winning team. The Cardinals would go on to win 86 games. And Jose had a 3.05 ERA with career highs in wins, innings pitched, whip. His whip was down at 1.034, so really keeping runners off base. Five complete games and three shutouts. It's still an up-and-down season. He has a run of six straight losses in June and July. But he finishes the season over 500, 16-12. A 16-12 and 12 record, but 10 of those losses came with two or fewer runs of support. For example, August 30th, he had a game against the Reds. He threw 11 innings of one-hit ball and got a no decision as the Reds won 2-0 in the 13th inning. The Cardinals left 16 men on base that game. Now, maybe is the problem that Jose is just not a good enough hitter? You know, he's not batting people in. Does he have to do it all himself? He was the second Cardinal to strike out 200 batters in back-to-back seasons, leading the National League with 201, but it still wasn't good enough to improve his record. Coming off that big year, 29-year-old Jose de Leon gets a big contract, three years for $6.5 million. And instead, in 1990, the Cardinals were terrible, and de Leon's performance dropped as well. He led the league in losses again with 19. His ERA increased to 4.43, which is an 86 ERA+. And this was just a tale of two seasons. In the middle of June, he was 6-5 and five with a 3.79 ERA. Not too bad, but... The second half of the season, he had 17 starts where he went 1-14 with an ERA over 5. 
in those 17 games, his teammates only scored 36 runs for him. So just, again, the same old story, pitching okay and not getting any support. You'd expect, a, again, an ERA plus well below 186. It's not great, but not necessarily a 19 loss season. I think in this season, the Cardinals also sat him in his last game so that he didn't get 20 losses. In 1991, he bounced back, but his record did not reflect it at all. He went 5-9, and nine, but he had 14 no decisions. Overall, he had a 2.71 ERA. His ERA plus was fifth in the National League, 136. But in those 14 no decisions, he had a 2.75 ERA. So basically, like he was really good, just no run support. The Cardinals in the second half in 11 games, he went 2-2 two and two with a 2.01 ERA. The Cardinals finish in last place, terrible offense. And Jose, unfortunately, takes the, the brunt of, of those no decisions and just not reflective in his record that he was very good that season. Yep, same story in 1992. He started 12 games and was 2-6 and six with a 4.28 ERA. The team moves him to the bullpen, see if that can change his prospects. He didn't really get much better in the pen, and in August of 1992, he was released. He signs with the Phillies, finished 1992 there, pitching in three games out of the bullpen. 1993, he stays with the Phillies. He pitches well in 24 games, then was traded back to the White Sox for Bobby Thigpen. One-time saves record holder, now a forgotten man in the White Sox bullpen. Another big name that Jose was traded for, but Bobby Thigpen had not been good for a couple years. De Leon ends up playing really well in his 11 appearances, only gave up two runs. He got his first chance to play in the playoffs for the White Sox, pitching a scoreless inning in game one, which was a loss. And then he gave up one run in three and two thirds innings in another loss in game five. So didn't pitch terrible, but got a chance to play in the playoffs. In 67 innings of relief in the strike short in 1994 season, he had a 140 ERA plus for the White Sox, a solid contribution for a team that was seemingly on its way to the playoffs when the strike happened. In 1995, he split time between the White Sox and Montreal, going a combined 5-4 and four with a 5.45 ERA. In 1997, he pitched in Taiwan for the China Times Eagles, pitching well in 42 games, but that team folded. So in 1998, he tried the China Trust Wales, pitching in only 22 innings, but was still effective, 2.01 ERA, and retired after that season. So closing the book on Jose De Leon, 13 seasons in the major leagues, a record of 86 wins, 119 losses, and ERA of 3.76. He pitched in 415 games with 1,900 innings and 1,594 strikeouts. He led the league in strikeouts once and losses twice. Even though his win-loss record was so bad, he had an ERA plus of 102 in his career. You mentioned about helping himself at the plate. Jose was not a very good hitter. He had a 091 batting average in 419 plate appearances. So there ah. that's a negative 35 OPS plus. See, that's the real root of the issue, David. How about in retirement? This I got nothing here. This is maybe <laughs> the least I have found about any player. Maybe Ray Quinones is the the other mystery man. According to his Sabre bio, he was married and had three kids. I did find that he and his first wife 
divorced in 1989. And I found nothing in terms of a where are they now with Jose, except I found some legal documents about child support payments. Jose may owe some money to his ex-wife. And I found a 2017 document that said that maybe even his ex-wife couldn't find Jose. The Missouri Court of Appeals found that the wife's notice of foreign judgment filing was insufficient because the address only included husband's name, foreign country, and foreign county. So she didn't even have a city or a street address for Jose in 2017. Unclear if he is avoiding having to pay some child support payments and hiding in the Dominican Republic. Unclear. I'm not sure what what happened there, but I haven't found anything since 2017. And normally even a Sabre bio says what kind of job they're doing, what business they're in, are they coaching somewhere? I got nothing. Maybe he's in the witness protection program. Who knows? Maybe he's in the Kings of Leon. (laughs) It's very possible. Well, David, you had mentioned that there had been some debate about Jose's role and how good a pitcher he really was through the years. So now that we've looked at it a little closer, what do we think now? Anytime you see that many losses, it jumps out at you on the back of a card. When you see bold lettering in the loss column, it's not necessarily a good sign. But in the ERA column, pretty good. 19 losses, but a 4.70 ERA. We've seen way worse than that. He was really a tough luck pitcher, and sometimes that bad luck got to him and made him pitch worse. If he got a guy on base, he might stress out a little bit, might lose his control. Sometimes that made him less effective, but oftentimes there was nothing he could do. In searching for stories about him, there's a bunch of the same story. Throws a one-hitter, loses in extra innings. Gives up one run, strikes out 14 guys, Pirates lose 2-1. to one. No run support, bad luck. He had good stuff, struck out a lot of guys. The third most strikeouts of any pitcher with under 100 wins, behind only Hugh Darvish and Jacob deGrom. The only issue with those two guys is, in De Leon's days, wins meant a lot, and it painted a picture of Jose as a losing pitcher. Darvish and DeGrom both have winning percentages over 500, where De Leon is sitting at a very nice 420. It takes a good pitcher to not totally implode as your team is giving you nothing in support. He didn't give up a lot of home runs. He kept guys off base, at least in terms of hits. He was regularly in the top 10 in fewest hits per nine innings and is 32nd all time in that category. But he is also regularly in the top 10 in most walks conceded as well as most batters hit by pitch. So while De Leon's career was up and down, when he was bad, he wasn't that far from average. Of pitchers with 200-plus starts and a winning percentage under 450, his 102 ERA plus is sixth best. So despite those flashes of brilliance and a few seasons over 500, De Leon couldn't quite shake the reputation of being the best losing pitcher in baseball. I've seen a few articles where folks try to re-examine his career and see if he's underrated. And maybe he was underrated if you think he's terrible. But this isn't like Burt Blylevin, where we're looking at a guy and saying, maybe there's a Hall of Fame case here that nobody noticed because of his win-loss record. At his best, he was very good in a few games, but generally he couldn't keep it going for a full season. So it's not underrated or overrated, but fairly rated. Even in terms of wins above replacement, he never quite had a all-star season. His best year in 1991, which we acknowledge was a, a great season in 28 starts, he was a valued at 3.4 wins above replacement. 
So that's between a starter and, and an all-star. He was quite good, but he had a couple seasons where he was right around three, but never also was bad enough that he was at like negative one. He's always good enough to stick with a team for a full season and good enough that teams wanted him on their club. The win-loss record is just uh, kind of a meaningless stat. It's it's a team stat and not necessarily a pitcher stat. Makes sense. So so even though we're not sure what's happened since 2017, it's still a good story and an interesting career to find and two good cards to take a look at. So thank you, David, for that. And thank you to you at home. If you're in the Witness Protection Program, you can reach out to us anonymously on Twitter. We're at Tops1988. Thanks a lot, and we'll see you next week.